It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. Before you get started today, I've got some exciting news. Yes, we have our first sponsor. And what that means for me is I got my first free swag in the mail for being a podcaster. And what I got is a pair of Trey headphones from Studio. And what Studio does is they take just totally maniacal sound engineering and they combine it with very fine Swedish engineering to make a really kind of beautiful set of headphones that have crazy good sound. Uh, you know, in the past, you normally kind of have to choose between one and the other, that style or sound thing. Um, I got these tray in-ear headsets that are like totally sweat-proof. I run with them a bunch. Uh, they do a great job hanging on. They have absolutely beautiful sound. Um, and, you know, I was actually kind of nervous when I got them. And I was thinking like, oh, what if I don't like them? Do I have to say something nice about them? No, I absolutely love these things. I have literally just thrown out my old headphones because I don't want them anymore. Um, if you like over the ear headphones. They also have uh, a great selection of those as well as other in-ear headphones starting from 50 bucks, going up to 99 bucks. The price indeed is outrageous and they have free worldwide shipping. Kind of doesn't matter where you live unless it's the moon or something. So you can go to studio, S-U-D-I-O, Sweden.com to get your pair now. But wait, there's more, of course. Um, as a special offer to reconsider listeners, you can put the promo code re consider in at the checkout for 15% off your first order. So, you know, if you're an audiophile like me, and of course you're listening to a podcast, you are, go to studiosweden.com, get yourself a pair of these bad boys. It will change your listening experience forever. And remember the promo code reconsider. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we've got uh, a great guest coming on today to help us sort out and get deeper into a bunch of the concepts we've been talking about, right? We've talked about inflation, the Federal Reserve, the gold standard. Uh, we've talked about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. And, you know, to some extent, Xander and I, while we've done a bunch of research, we're not policy experts. And one thing we've learned over the years studying economics in particular is that it's one of the trickiest sort of meta topics in the world. So we decided that we were going to get some help. And I think that we have brought a guest who is, uh, I've got to say, I can't imagine a more qualified and exciting person to bring on. Yes, on our show today is Dr. Donald Marin, who is an Institute Fellow, 
and Director of Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute. He also led the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. So he really has a good sense of what's going on, not just in the broader economy, but really with a lot of tax policy issues and how stuff in the broader economy affects those tax policy issues. So we'll dive right in with him. But before that, just a quick reminder for everyone, if you haven't filled out the listener survey, we'd be really grateful if you did. It'll take two minutes, reconsidermedia.com slash survey, or go to the show notes. Enjoy. Joining us today to help with our broader conversation about the Federal Reserve, about interest rates, about currency, and about the greater impact of all of these things on the American and global economy, we have Dr. Donald Marin of the Urban Institute. Dr. Marin is an Institute Fellow and Director of Economic Policy Initiatives at the Urban Institute. Conducts research on tax policy and federal budgeting and identifies opportunities for urban to develop policy relevant research on economic and financial issues. From 2010 to 2013, he led the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. And before joining Urban, Dr. Marin served in a whole lot of senior government positions, including as a member of the President's Council of Economic Advisors and acting director of the Congressional Budget Office. He also taught at Georgetown Public Policy Institute at and uh, the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business, consulted on major antitrust cases, and has been chief financial officer of a healthcare software startup. He has a whole lot of publications. He has a huge list of credentials and education that we're not going to waste your time with. It is quite a mouthful to try to express everything that Dr. Marin has already accomplished and the depth of his expertise. We are just over the moon to have him as a guest here on Reconsider to help us learn more about this stuff. Dr. Marin, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation. So first off, we're, we're talking about fiat currency and inflation in this series, and we're definitely going to get into how that relates to some tax issues. But first, let's just start at square one, because what we try to do um, at Reconsider is just provide some context for folks um, who are curious about these things. So first off, Dr. Marin, how would you define inflation? What is it? Are there different definitions that can that can be used by either economists or policy wonks that have different implications? Sure. So for economists, uh, inflation is pretty easy to define. Uh, it's uh, what happens when average prices throughout the economy are going up. So I've had conversations with people before who have said, okay, inflation is only when money supply increases. And then I've heard, you know, the more general definition that you just gave, which is the one I, I, I usually refer to, which is just prices going up. What's the relationship between money supply and inflation? And can inflation occur when you don't have an increase in the money supply? It's important to, to think about inflation and the macro economy generally, and to think about what happens in the short run and distinguish it from what happens in the long run. Uh, so in the long run, uh, there's very good evidence that changes in the money supply are a key driver of prices and inflation. Milton Friedman, a famous uh, economist, once said that um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. That's an overstatement, uh, but I think it would be fair to say that sustained, persistent inflation is just about always a, a monetary phenomenon. And so if the money supply grows rapidly, uh, prices will grow rapidly. 
In the short run, though, right, so think about days, weeks, months, maybe a couple of years, uh, there are other factors that affect overall prices and that can drive uh, inflation or sometimes drive deflation, which is uh, average prices going down. You know, the classic example would be something like an oil price shock, uh, where if oil prices suddenly rise because of some, you know, international incident, that could cause prices to rise throughout the economy on average uh, and would count as short-run inflation. Uh, and you can sometimes have something similar would happen, which, which happens if demand is particularly strong, right? So if stock prices go up a lot, which has been happening lately, uh, and people start feeling wealthy, they may start go out and trying to buy more things, and that can drive up prices in the short run as well. Is there a way that the government, generally, say the Federal Reserve, the people who really care about the inflation number and are trying to control it, is there a way that they're able to differentiate for themselves how much of inflation in a given quarter, year, set of years is due to monetary policy or is due to changes in you know, like changes in prices due to supply and demand. Again, say oil prices went up substantially or food prices go up because of global warming or something like that. So yes, so there are there are multiple inflation measures that uh, the policymakers look at. Uh, the Fed tracks uh, a number of different ones. Uh, you have issues about you know whose prices count for this calculation. Uh, so there are measures of inflation that try to cover the whole U.S. economy, uh, and then there are measures that focus on consumers. Uh, people tend to focus on the consumer measures. Uh, there are some geeky issues about how you measure inflation, which we could come back to if you're interested. So there are different ways of measuring consumer inflation. Uh, the Fed particularly focuses on something called uh, the personal consumptions expenditure uh, measure of inflation. Um, and then there's a, there's a fascinating, uh, what, what you think of as a signal uh, extraction problem that uh, lots of prices are moving around in the economy at any given moment. Uh, from a monetary policy point of view, the thing you're concerned about is which of those movements are telling you about the future trajectory of inflation. Uh, and so economists often look at a measure called core inflation that strips out uh, energy prices and strips out food prices. You know, now critics sometimes make fun of economists as though, you know, economists don't drive cars, heat their homes and eat. And trust me, right, economists really do eat and uh, drive their cars and heat their homes. Uh, but there's, there's pretty good evidence that oil prices and food prices bounce around a lot. And so if your concern is about trying to understand what the trajectory of inflation is for the future, it sometimes makes sense to strip them out and focus on core inflation. Yeah, I always enjoyed in, in my economics classes how literally the only two options that economists give you to pick between are guns and butter. That's it. You can't live on anything else. Exactly. So a lot of people will talk about inflation well, a lot of people will talk about hyperinflation, for example, and that's become sort of a buzzword to describe oftentimes what is nowhere near hyperinflation. But the Fed targets, the Federal Reserve targets small inflation, 2%, um, and considers that to be a, a positive support of growth in the economy. But of course, very, very high inflation can be negative and very low inflation or, or negative inflation, deflation, as you mentioned it, uh, can also have deleterious effects on the economy. Why, why does it vary so much? Well, let's see where to start. Uh, 
So let's let's start with the case of kind of low and persistent stable inflation, right? The Federal Reserve currently targets about 2% annual inflation using its preferred measure. You know, there's some discussion about whether that ought to be one or three or four, but you know, in any of those ranges, that would be relatively low uh, inflation. And the view is that having a little bit of inflation is helpful for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it sort of it greases a little bit the, the economy over time and helps prices adjust better. Uh, and the reason for that is that for many prices, particularly for you know, the most important price in the economy, or one of the most important prices in the economy are people's wages. Oh, I was going to say butter. Yeah, no, not butter prices. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, although, as we understand more about nutrition, I think butter is becoming more in than it was uh, a couple years ago. But, you know, people's wages, there's a little bit of stickiness downward uh, that people are reluctant or businesses, employers are reluctant to literally cut people's wages, even, you know, even in situations where um, workers may not uh, be producing enough to, 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 from a business point of view, justify their current wage. Uh, and if you run a little bit of inflation in the economy, that gives some freedom to businesses to keep some employees' wages at, at their, their current level. Um, and not create as much pain and, and personal suffering as there would be uh, if you were literally explicitly cutting them. You know, that's similarly true for some other prices. And uh, It's also the case that from the perspective of running monetary policy, uh, which often involves cutting interest rates, uh, you know, interest rates are in part determined by the inflation level. So when you have higher inflation, you have higher interest rates. And so running a little bit of inflation gives you some space to cut interest rates if you're in a period of economic weakness and you need to provide some monetary stimulus. Uh, and as we know from our, our recent period, you know, recently going through the Great Recession, um, you know, you can run into the zero lower bound where interest rates can't go any lower and uh, monetary policy becomes weaker or you have to start doing different, more creative things, quantitative easing. Uh, and so there's a view that having a, a persistent but relatively low level of inflation of 2%, uh, maybe a little bit higher, gives you some room that's useful for, for making monetary policy. So that's, that's the story about why a little bit of inflation might be a good thing. I actually just learned two things from that. That's really cool. Okay. So shall I go on on higher levels of inflation? Absolutely. Um, so once you start having high levels of inflation, you know, 10% a year, 20% a year, 50% a year, in some inflations we've seen, you know, multiple, you know, five-digit uh, growth rates of in in inflation over time, you know, 100% a year, 1,000% a year, even more than that. Uh, then you get into a period where the, the rise in prices really starts to interfere with the functioning of the economy, uh, and eventually economies can fall apart. Uh, one reason is that currency uh, no longer becomes a useful store of value. You know, so in our normal lives, we usually carry around some cash. We have some cash at home. Uh, and you know, we hold that in expectations that we're going to be able to spend it on something someday. Uh, if inflation is running 100% a year, you don't behave that way. Uh, you try to get the cash out of your hands as quickly as possible uh, into some product that you can, you can hold on to. Uh, and that begins to undermine the functioning of, of the system. Uh, and then also, high inflation rates tend to be very volatile, like so you're not exactly sure what the inflation rate is. And so that makes it very difficult for people to plan for the future. 
Uh, for example, if you're trying to get uh, a loan to buy a house and you need to figure out what the interest rate is, it's much easier to figure out an approach rate if inflation is running persistently at 2% uh, than if it's up at you know 10 or 15%, but it might be 8% and it might be 20%. Uh, and you know you spread that over the whole economy, and it starts becoming very difficult for people to make long-term uh, economic decisions. I actually want to pick on the wages thing a little bit because I just learned that the you know like one of the reasons to keep inflation at you know non-zero or non-negative is to give companies some space to you know keep the nominal level of wages constant, but you know but thereby gradually reduce wages in periods where the marginal value of the worker has gone down for some reason. Um, some arguments I've heard about is generally in favor of the gold standard or restricting the Fed's ability to keep inflation as a constant thing have said that inflation is eaten into the wages of workers and that there's a stickiness up as well, that there's a pressure not to increase wages, and that had there not been inf compounding inflation eating away at raises, eating away at increases in wages, that workers might actually be making more now. Is there anything incisive that we have from experience or research that you know lends any credibility to that claim or refutes it? So in the long run, uh, inflation does a pretty good job of showing up not just in the prices that people pay, but also in the wages that they earn. That uh, basically, you know, the market forces move you in that direction, um, and that there's there's a healthy balance being struck there. In the short run, when things are not as flexible. Uh, when prices don't change as rapidly as maybe they might in an optimal world, when people make mistakes, when there's uncertainty, when there's confusion, um, you can clearly have situations where things get out of whack uh, and you can have inflationary periods where prices go up faster than people's wages uh, and that the inflation is uh, making folks worse off. And then occasionally, you of course, have the reverse as well, where uh, you have less inflation than people, uh, they're, they're coming out better off. Um, you know, this goes back to the, the question we had at, at really the start about how do you define inflation. And, uh, you know, economists really focused as a starting point on this notion of average prices rising throughout the economy, including wages. Um, and so that inflation is a situation just where the value of the dollar is going down over time and that's being reflected in higher consumer prices and in higher uh, nominal wages. But often for, you know, sort of for normal, for conversations with normal people, if I can put it that way, um, you know, there's a lot of concern that inflation really is a story about eroding people's uh, ability to purchase things. Um, and again, that, you know, that can be a very important thing in the short run. Uh, in the longer run, uh, inflation appears to show up both in wages and in prices. So if we're to bring this conversation about uh, inflations and some of the restrictions that the gold standard um, or that any commodity currency system places upon the Fed's ability to act, there's there has been a growing calls from certain um, political, I guess you can say political factions or groups in the last couple of years to return to the gold standard. Um, if that were to happen tomorrow, what sorts of restrictions would that place 
on the Federal Reserve, on the Federal Reserve, maybe above and beyond the, the inflation issue that we already touched on, or are there other aspects of restrictions on inflation that the gold standard would would create as well that we need to talk about? Uh, sure. So let's 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 go up a level and just quickly talk about uh, sort of fiat currencies versus commodity currencies versus commodity backed currencies. Um, so obviously, in the United States, we operate on a on a fiat currency system where where the government announces that dollars are the currency and we all use them and uh, trust the full faith and credit uh, of the government in them. At the other extreme, you can imagine a pure commodity currency where there is no central bank and you have an economy that just decides by some mechanism that some particular commodity is going to be used as money, right? So as a means of exchange, uh, value, those sorts of things. You know, maybe the cleanest example of that we have from history are um, things like what, what happened in some prisoner of war camps uh, where they had access to some resources, they had access to some food products, they had access to cigarettes, uh, and that uh, in some of those instances, what happened is that cigarettes emerged as a form of money and, you know, very much a commodity money. It's a commodity that obviously some, some of the people, some of the prisoners could use by smoking, uh, but also emerged this, this system of using that as a way to denominate prices and uh, exchange things uh, and save for the future. And so obviously no central bank in that case. Right, so in the extreme case of commodity money, uh, you have no central bank. It emerges spontaneously from the economy uh, and functions or doesn't function uh, based on what happens there. Uh, and then you have things like what most of the gold standard was, uh, where you have commodity-backed currencies. And so you'd have a central bank or some other government mechanism that issues currency, issues pieces of paper uh, that are linked to gold in some way or some other commodity, but typically gold or silver. Um, and then those are used as legal tender, as, as money in the economy. Uh, and then that then creates a whole set of questions about uh, how much are those worth and how much gold are they backed by. So then when we talk about the gold standard in the United States, we're really talking about that latter example, a commodity-backed currency of one form or another, even though it did change over the life of the gold standard as it exists in the U.S. Yes, exactly right. So we had a system where the dollar was backed by gold um, and, you know, you can imagine a system like that where there's a one-to-one -one relationship where every dollar is backed by a corresponding amount of gold. Uh, and you can imagine a system like that where uh, they're sort of the equivalent of fractional reserve banking, and the central bank issues uh, more dollars uh, than it has gold backing them, but it promises to redeem them at what they're supposed to be worth. And as long as, you know, not too many try to redeem, uh, you can make a system like that work. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And when the United States was on the gold standard um, and had the Federal Reserve at the same time, which I think was between 1913 and ultimately 1976, what was different about the Fed's ability to control inflation, print money, all that stuff. Because, you know, presumably by moving to a fiat currency where we did away with the need for these gold reserves, you know, I, I would think that it would create some freedom for the Federal Reserve to act differently and therefore have more control. But I'm not actually sure if that's true. Yes. So I, the, the, a fiat regime gives the central bank a great deal more flexibility Obviously, the flexibility it has is also going to be limited by whatever the legislative and executive branches allow the central bank to do. Um, but right, because under under a gold standard, uh, there's going to be some relationship between the monetary policy you pursue uh, and the amount of gold that the central bank has or that the economy has. And under those systems, you have to worry about things like, well, what if gold tries to leave the country, right? What if gold is flowing abroad? Do we allow that to happen? Do we allow that to contract our money supply? Or do we try to lean against that? Uh, do, you know, if we have a relatively fixed amount of gold in the country and we have a growing economy, uh, how do you reflect that growth in the money supply? If you try to maintain a fixed relationship between the money supply and the amount of gold you have, you gotta get more gold somehow and acquiring gold is expensive. You have to go pay people real resources for it, right? Money that you could have spent on something else, right? You could have imported, you know, clothing or coffee or cars from the rest of the world, but instead you're spending some money to acquire gold. That's, our, that's a real cost of uh, trying to acquire that gold. Uh, and so you face those kinds of trade-offs that make central banking more difficult. Uh, if you have a fixed amount of gold in the country, you know, all else equal over time, that creates some deflationary pressure uh, because the economy is expanding. You got a fixed amount of gold. If, if you're keeping the same relative amount of money to gold, uh, then the money somehow has to be used for a larger and larger economy, which creates problems. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, operating on a commodity currency uh, puts a lot of constraints on what the central bank does. Yeah, the point about having to actually go out and mine gold is is a good one because even under a, a, a gold-backed currency regime, you have businesses that that's all they do. So you still have the supply of gold, of the global supply of gold increasing, although, of, of course, there will be restrictions on how quickly that can grow. Now, Bitcoin actually in some ways seems to act, even though people just say, oh, it's digital currency, it's, it's zeros and ones. It's, it's sort of set up to act in certain ways more like a commodity-backed currency, at least from the, from the perspective of restricting the supply of Bitcoin and that happening somewhat automatically and, and at a, a sort of a slow growth rate. How, how would you compare Bitcoin, this, this new digital um, phenomenon, to fiat currency regimes versus commodity-backed regimes? 
So that's a great question. There, there are, I think, like two main ways you can approach that question. Uh, so one is you can think about commodity currencies as being based on a commodity that has some other use, right? So in my prisoner of war example, the cigarettes had a sincere other use, but they emerged as a commodity being used as money because that worked well for, for the, the circumstances that people found themselves in. And in contrast, you can imagine you know, a fiat currency, you know, when I open my wallet and I take out a green piece of paper, you know, it's basically just a near worthless piece of paper, except for the fact that it's money. I suppose if I were being precise, I would note that it's not literally paper because it's made out of cotton and all sorts of other, but the moral equivalent of paper. Um, we have to fact check me on what it's literally made out of, but it's, it's, it's made out of complicated things. Um, and so, you know, Bitcoin, you could argue, is like a fiat currency in that, in some sense, a Bitcoin has no real value uh, except as its use as money. Uh, however, I think it's more useful to think about it on another dimension and to say that, that Bitcoin really is more like a commodity currency. I mean, Bitcoin, in some levels, is really, you know, an asset um, that's being used as a currency in certain, in certain environments. Uh, and there's a fixed amount of it. I mean, in the case of Bitcoin, there's literally a fixed amount of it. We know how many Bitcoins there are ever going to be. Uh, they're being mined over time. And, you know, there's no opportunity for a central bank or anyone else to suddenly create more of them. Uh, and so it's going to behave a lot like a commodity currency. It's going to, you know, have some more volatility. Um, the, a difference from gold and a difference from silver is that uh, with gold and silver, while in some cosmic sense there's a finite amount, uh, in reality, you know, there are flexible amounts of them based on how much people uh, go out and find and mine and, you know, in the future how many asteroids they can collect that have gold and silver on them. Uh, and so there is, there is a mechanism with gold or silver whereby uh, if, prices, if their prices go up a lot, there can be a supply response uh, that will bring more into the system. And so there's at least some equilibrating mechanism where if, if the price of gold and price of silver go up too high, which causes deflation, that uh, over time there'll be some additional supply that will bring more of that monetary base into the economy. Uh, whereas that's not true for Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin, there's a fixed amount that we'll ever know, we'll ever have. Uh, and so there's not going to be any ability to, to find new supplies of them. And just for the sake of uh, very brief context for folks less familiar with Bitcoin, when you say um, fixed supply, that, that just means, without getting into the details, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin, and it was kind of set up so that miners or computers around the world that generally or that generate new Bitcoin and gradually increase the currency can't get past that level, right? Exactly. They're going to be twin, uh, and if I understand the protocol correctly. Uh, it's designed so that one new Bitcoin gets mined approximately every 10 minutes. You'll have to fact check me on that, but that's the spirit of it. Um, and that if mining technology improves, the difficulty of the problem you have to solve gets harder uh, so that there's a, a predetermined rate at which new Bitcoins are created. We know what the maximum number is going to be at the end. Uh, and, you know, there's no way to create them faster, and there's no way to create more of them than that ultimate cap. And what this means is that cryptocurrencies could potentially have some substantial impact on 
the global economy. Let's imagine, for example, you know, say the United States gets uh, nuked or something, right? The United States economy collapses completely, or we make some terrible decisions that lead to hyperinflation. People lose trust in the United States dollar. Maybe they'd have to lose trust in the yen and the yuan and the euro as well. But let's say something causes the world to adopt cryptocurrency as the primary rate of exchange. And we'd love to talk about the volatility as an issue with that in a moment. But what might that mean? How might that change You know, what happens to, for example, inflation or what happens uh, for example, to you know how a new government or a, a government dealing with this would handle its reserves. Yeah, so this is right. So this is now what I would view as way out there speculative sci-fi. Um, that you know, I would say that we're still very early in 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 the evolution of cryptocurrencies and figuring out how they're going to work. Um, the the analogy I've been working with in my mind is that. You know, traditional currencies usually have a geographic origin. So, you know, you've got the yen in Japan, you've got the pound in Britain, you've got the, the U.S. dollar in the United States. Um, and we all use those as currencies and as money in our respective economies. You know, some of them are liquid enough so that they become uh, internationally acceptable currencies. The dollar would be the extreme case, but also, you know, the euro and, and the yen. You know, whereas other currencies, you know, think about the Brazilian real, you know, outstanding currency in Brazil, but, you know, not one that large portions of international trade and transactions are, are denominated in. And so that, you know, is a perfectly legitimate form of money. But for those of us who live in the United States, it's not really something we think of money as money, uh, except unless we're visiting Brazil or, or transacting with Brazil in some way. You know, what the cryptocurrencies bring, and Bitcoin in particular, is sort of, you know, so they throw away the geography of all of that. And they create sort of this parallel uh, economy, sort of nascent economy, uh, where Bitcoin can be used as a currency. You know, clearly the place where Bitcoin is most acting like a currency is in the cryptocurrency space, where basically you see that lots of, uh, lots of coins are denominated in Bitcoins or denominated in Ether, their prices. Um, and so, you know, both Bitcoin and, and Ethereum are acting in some sense as currencies in those worlds. And then you see occasional uh, efforts to connect Bitcoin to what you might think of as the real world, I'm doing air quotes, you can't see that because it's a podcast, but I, I don't mean that in a way to disparage the Bitcoin economy, but just you know the economy that most of us spend the vast majority of our times in. Um, and what you see at the moment is that transacting with the real economy is very hard uh, with Bitcoin. Right? You do see some instances in which people are paid wages in Bitcoin. You see some cases in which people can buy things with Bitcoin. But then you also have headlines like the one from a few weeks ago of, you know, the big, the Bitcoin conference where they wanted you to be able to get hotel rooms in Bitcoin and eventually decided that didn't work and they had to go back to boring old fiat currency like the dollar. Uh, and so, you know, we're at a stage now where the Bitcoin crypto uh, currency economy is a fascinating experiment. It's growing but still very small and very disconnected from most of the rest of uh, kind of the active economy. I, I might ask for there's a little bit more speculation on this, on, this, on this question, but a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned how in some ways Bitcoin really is acting more like an asset. And then Eric, 
talked about the volatility of it. When sort of like the standard definition of currency is is it has to serve three purposes, and this is just like Econ 101 textbook you know, store of value, medium of exchange, and unit of account. Store of value uh, for folks out there, um, you know, that one's kind of self, self-evident. self Medium of exchange just means it facilitates uh, trade and transactions. And the unit of account just means that that's the unit by which prices are denominated in an economy. Now, Bitcoin as an asset definitely serves the store of value purpose, at least to a degree. But how does the volatility affect these other two definitions, both the medium of exchange and the unit of, um, the unit of account? And if this price fluctuates so much, can Bitcoin really fulfill these three obligations? Yeah, so let's actually, let's, let's start with store of value, just I think that's a useful way to begin the conversation. And... Um, if you think about it, in 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 out here in the normal economy, uh, store value has two features to it. Uh, so the first is what you might think of as physical. You know, will this thing persist into the future so that I can you know use it uh, to acquire other stuff in the future? And so gold, for example, is outstanding as a store of value because the gold persists. It doesn't interact with a lot of other things. It doesn't rust. Um, there are some security issues around it. There's some weight issues around it. Um, but still, you know, gold is a good store of value. Uh, diamonds can often be a good store of value. Uh, again, some security issues, but it's not as though your diamonds break down. Um, whereas, you know, something valuable like lettuce or milk, you know, are wonderful products, uh, but are a terrible store of value because they rapidly depreciate. Lettuce-backed currency. It's yeah, going exactly. to be the That's new thing. That's just not going to work. Um, what about butter? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Butter, you know, butter, butter, butter goes bad. All those kinds of oh. things. You know, you don't want things that depreciate to be your store of value. Because there goes my latest startup, butter on the blockchain. Yeah, out the window. Well, you know, if you search around, you will find a banana on the blockchain. As, as <laughs> oh gosh, um, uh, sometimes reality is even funnier than jokes. Yes, uh, and I believe that was actually what the person said when they were distributing that on Twitter. Um, so there's the physical part, and then there's the value part, right? Will this thing be worth something in the future, which is going to be determined by circumstances, right? So for you know people who bought Beanie Babies at the peak of the Beanie Baby bubble, bubble, um, which you guys may be too young to remember, um, you know, lots of those Beanie Babies are still around. They're physically you know capable of being played with. Uh, indeed, my my son has lots of them at home that I gave him for my stock of Beanie Babies. Uh, but you know, it was not a good way to, to protect your value. So you got the physics of will it persist, and then you got the will it will it will it maintain its value. Um, so when you think about Bitcoin, Bitcoin is actually really fascinating from a store of value thing because on the one hand we think about digital assets as being these persistent things, right? All you need is your you know your special code, and you've got it. And yet on the other hand, there are just incredible number of stories of people who lose their codes and lose their bitcoins. Um, and, you know, you have, you know, the, the Winklevoss, you know, twins who have a lot of, lot of money in Bitcoin, you know, and they talk about the incredible efforts they go to keep it secure and keep it safe and, you know, writing down their, their relevant codes and cutting them in pieces and storing them in safety box, deposit boxes. Um, and then you have lots of stories about people who do things like this and then lose the slip of paper and all of a sudden their Bitcoins are gone. Uh, and people who run into issues with their electronic wallets. And so, you know, 
I, I, I view this as being nascent and then a lot of these problems will be solved over time, but actually Bitcoin is actually a fairly lousy store of value for a certain type of person who is highly likely to either lose their code or to make their code uh, available to someone else who can then steal their Bitcoins. And it is a good store of value for people who are really, really good at the electronic security of both not having them stolen and not forgetting their numbers. Um, and again, I, I expect that will get better and better over time. Uh, so medium of exchange, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. You know, inside the Bitcoin cryptocurrency economy, uh, Bitcoin is a relatively good medium of exchange in that you can go buy Tether, you can go buy Ethereum, whatever, relatively seamlessly uh, with Bitcoin with one big asterisk, uh, which is that transaction fees have gone up a lot. Uh, that, uh, you know, demands on the network have exceeded its technological capabilities, at least as they stand today. Um, and so it's actually become more difficult to do transactions in Bitcoin. There are various technologies under development that could potentially address that. You know, many of them have the characteristic of creating new settlement mechanisms uh, off the blockchain for small transactions so that you could use Bitcoin fluidly off the blockchain and then periodically sort of aggregated transactions would go up on the blockchain. And I'm sure there'll be more innovations on that front. But at the moment, there's definitely some friction inside the economy, uh, the Bitcoin economy of using it uh, for exchange, except for large amounts. And then obviously there's a lot of friction in using it as a medium of exchange, uh, connecting with the outside physical world, right? So there was, you know, the hotel example from the Bitcoin conference uh, and just, you know, the relative dearth of people who take cryptocurrencies right now as a method of payment. Uh, we saw a major payments company called Stripe announce recently that it was going to discontinue support for, for Bitcoin in the future. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a pessimist in suggesting at all that these things won't be worked out. Uh, but I would say that at the moment, uh, the, the use of, of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as a medium of exchange connecting to the kind of conventional economy uh, still has a lot, of, a lot of hiccups in it. Are there any issues on the unit of account side or is that, well, I guess you kind of talked about as far as price fluctuations go? Yeah, I mean, unit account, I mean, I, I'm sure there's someone in, in cryptocurrency land who denominates their life in Bitcoins. Um, but, you know, the reality is that most of the time, I think people still, I mean, the vast majority of the time, people still denominate their life in their home currencies, whether it's dollars or euros. You know, if you go to the most popular sites for tracking the development of this economy, you know, you will, you will always see prices denominated in dollars because that's the way people uh, so often think. And so, you know, maybe someday, but not there yet. Now, I, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit now because you are a tax policy researcher and taxes are probably on people's mind a little bit more now than they usually are with the tax bill that just got passed. What is the intersection in the, in the themes that we've been talking about in terms of inflation that the government needs to consider when they put together a bill like this? Are there are there... Well, yeah, I'll end the question there. Well, let, let me start big picture. Uh, big picture, there's a question about how the government finds the money to pay for the things that it wants to do. And I may miss one, but off the top of my head, there are four ways for the government to do that. Uh, so one is to collect tax revenue. Uh, the second is to sell assets. 
like, you know, the federal government has a bunch of oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, um, and so one option is to sell some of that if the government needs money. Uh, a third option is to go out into capital markets and borrow money, right? So issue treasury bonds and bills, right? We do that almost every day. Uh, and then the fourth option is to print money, right? So you don't, you don't always have to tax people, sell an asset, or borrow money uh, if you're a government. If you're a government with a fiat currency, you always have the option of issuing some currency uh, to pay off some of your obligations and get it in the economy that way. And we do a little bit of that in the U.S., right? So, you know, a couple percent, I haven't checked the latest number, but, you know, maybe a couple of percent of the federal budget is covered by uh, what's called seniorage, right? So just printing money uh, as a way to finance what we're doing. And that makes sense because to have the economy function from year to year, it needs a little bit more money every year uh, as it's growing. Uh, so tiny bit of that uh, makes sense as the mix. But that the vast majority of what we do to finance our government uh, is to raise taxes and to borrow. And, you know, there is a healthy debate uh, in certain parts of the macroeconomics community about whether we've struck the right balance with that uh, or about whether uh, the federal government ought to increase the amount of money that it creates to pay for things, uh, drive inflation higher, and rely a little bit more on that uh, as a means of financing itself. One question I have is that, you know, given that the tax bill is currently scheduled to increase the federal deficit substantially, um, I think it's $1.5 over 10 years, you know, assuming that there's no additional decrease in spending or you know, new taxes levied on sales or tariffs or something like that. But let's assume it's something like $1.5 The United States already has a government debt that is approaching what it looked like right at the end of the Second World War. Um, and let's say that keeps going up, you know, maybe because of a recession, maybe because of something else. What starts to happen to the federal government's ability to raise money via loans or, or bonds or bills um, in order to finance itself going further as its debt as a percentage of GDP uh, you know, gets high enough. And I don't know what that right. number yeah, is. Right, yeah, no one knows high what enough. high enough is. The, um, so we find ourselves in an interesting circumstance at the moment where, as you say, the, the federal debt has gone up enormously uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Uh, and we're back at levels where you know, the standard thing we do in this world is we compare the amount of debt to the size of the economy, right, so that you can do comparisons over time in a, at least beginning to be apples to apples manner. Um, and so by that metric, we are clearly very high at the moment and not quite at, but close to where we were, you know, immediately after World War II. Uh, at the same time, though, we also have been in an environment where interest rates have been very low. And so the interest we've been paying on that debt has been moderate by historical standards. And so if you look at the burden of the interest payments on the federal government at the moment, you know, they're well within historical norms, and at least until recently have actually been slightly on the low side of historical norms uh, relative to the economy. Uh, basically, the, the, the low interest rates have more than offset the high debt. Now, the challenge you face there is, well, what happens to interest rates in the future, and are they going to go up? And people have been anticipating that interest rates would go up uh, for a long time now and have been wrong. 
now there's beginning to be some inkling that maybe they will start going up. Uh, we certainly have the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates at the shorter end of maturities, right? So the Fed primarily focuses on interest rates that people uh, pay and get on overnight loans or very short-term loans. So there are a set of issues about how that flows into longer-term uh, interest rates. But there's been some increase in longer-term interest rates, and we're going to be running bigger deficits in the future. And so there's a possibility in, in many cases, in many circles, an expectation that that will put some additional pressure on interest rates. And so, you know, the key thing really for the evolution of the debt and our ability to, to manage it easily is uh, how much interest rates rise and how rapidly. And that turns out to be one of those questions that uh, economists, like everyone else, are really poor at forecasting. Uh, the economy can go a lot of ways. Uh, whether interest rates will rise back up to more historical norms. You know, some people think they will, some people think they won't. Um, but that's really the key thing to watch. Dr. Marin, you mentioned that, you know, debt to GDP is obviously one metric that, that, that's very often referred to when you're trying to assess appropriate levels of debt. Now, if I were to go into a bank and try to take out a loan, they would definitely assess the total amount of debt versus my income. They would also assess my income versus the debt service. Then they would also assess the total amount of debt relative to my net wealth. So sort of like the balance sheet versus the income statement for financial wonks out there. I, you very rarely see any sorts of comparisons of sovereign debt to national net wealth. And I, I imagine part of that is just because it's a lot harder to figure out what aggregate wealth in an entire uh, nation would be. Do you think there, there is an argument to be made for, for presenting this kind of metric and assessing sort of the balance sheet side versus the income statement side? And um, of course, I think the question, follow-up question this implies is if yes, how would you go about trying to tax those assets to bring in the income that you would need? Yeah, so I would start. Uh, so I'm a big I'm a big fan of bringing balance sheet perspectives into these discussions, and I would actually just start with the federal government itself. Um, and I would note that over the last ten years, um, part of the reason for the dramatic increase in debt only a part of the reason, but a part of the reason uh, is actually that the federal government has played a larger role in being a lender uh, to the private sector. Uh, student loans are by far the largest component of that, uh, but the, uh, the government is also uh, engaged in lending to, to very other, various other kinds of uh, activities and businesses. And so the federal, the, the, the federal government has actually amassed a tidy sum on its balance sheet of assets, which are all these loans it's made. Now, we could do a separate podcast on discussing the student loan situation and how well those loans are going to pay off, um, but you know, they're clearly worth a lot more than zero. And so you can make a good argument that instead of focusing just on the debt that the federal government owes, that in fact we should look at its net financial assets. So what are its what are what are the loans outstanding? But then what, sorry, what's the debt that's outstanding? But then deduct from that some measure of how valuable the financial assets are uh, that the federal government owns, and so and that would show a smaller increase in the debt over time. You know, it doesn't eliminate the story. We've been borrowing a lot to finance deficits, but it is the case that we've borrowed, you know, more than a trillion dollars over over the last decade to um, to, to finance uh, uh, loans and other other financial assets. So thing one on the balance sheet is yes, I think we ought to do that. I think we ought to do it for the federal government, and it would show a slightly less uh, worrisome uh, financial position for the U.S. 
uh, at least as long as you believe that many of those student loans will pay off, which seems like a reasonable expectation. Uh, now, your broader question was, could you do that for uh, the economy as a whole? Uh, and, you know, we predominantly have an income tax in the United States plus a payroll tax as our two biggest sources of revenue to finance the and so, obviously, the payroll tax focuses on the portion of income that comes as wages and salaries. Uh, the income tax focuses on all sources of income, uh, including those that come from, from investments and from, from, from capital. And so what that leads most people to do is to focus on the ability of the government to finance uh, its debt out of the income that people report and can be taxed. And so we focus mostly on that income, which obviously relates to the stock of assets out there and the value of the assets, but really focuses uh, on the portion of those assets that generate taxable income each year. All right. I think we have one last question, and it's my doomsday question. And this this may be, uh, this could be too speculative for you to answer, and it's this. You mentioned that if our deficit goes up a sufficient amount and interest rates go up, and presumably to some extent, higher deficits will drive a higher interest rate on those long-term bonds because uh, people are starting to you know, feel some risk about the government's ability to pay it back, so they're going to demand higher rates uh, for those bonds. But um, if that gets high enough, and if, as you mentioned, the debt servicing costs for the federal government, which include paying back the the debt itself as well as the interest rate on the debt, if that gets if that gets high enough, uh, what starts to happen? You know, where where does this actually go wrong? Because the the I heard you mention that there's risk with the federal debt getting too high and interest rates being high as well. But what what actually happens if we sort of cross some boundary with those two numbers? Yeah, so there's probably not a boundary out there. It's probably more of a, you know, challenges grow over time. Uh, I would start with the question about, you know, why would, why would interest rates on the federal debt go up over time? And it's probably not concerned that we'd have any difficulty paying back. Um, you know, going back to the, the observation that the government has a bunch of different ways it can raise money uh, to pay off things. You know, we always have the option of uh, issuing more dollars to help pay off our debt. Uh, we have some assets we can sell. Uh, we have obviously tax revenue we can raise. Um, so there are different things we can do. And you know, with the exception of the occasional debt limit crisis crises we have, where the government might run into a legal restraint that makes it difficult to pay off the debt in the short run. Uh, which is a separate discussion. You know, I, I wouldn't lose I wouldn't lose much sleep over the prospect of the government not being able to uh, to to pay its debt, or that our creditors being worried about that. I think the bigger concern is that uh, folks may be concerned that inflation would go up if they think printing money is on the table as a possible way to to pay off the debt. Uh, and then there's also this phenomenon of what's called crowding out, uh, which is just that as the government borrows more, from, you know, goes out into capital markets, uh, under some circumstances that can leave less capital available out there uh, for other investors uh, for other, and for other, for other people who need to raise funds, and that can drive interest rates up uh, across the board, including for the federal government. And then the challenge you have in the future is, you know, suppose you've got the same amount of debt or a rising amount of debt, 
but interest rates go from an average, and now I'm going to make up numbers because I don't know what the price, precise one is, but you know, suppose the average debt today is paying 2.5%, uh, and suppose in the future that rises to, to 5 or 6 uh, that won't happen instantly because we have you know a bunch of long-term debt that already has its interest rates determined. But if you take a you know a several-decade perspective, you can imagine a world where the interest demands on the federal budget would be quite high. And I would say the primary thing that we should be concerned about uh, is how that will affect the spending decisions the federal government makes. And that is the interest burden rises and there's more basically, you know, there's less money left uh, in the budget to spend on all the things that the federal government does. You will start to see more and more cuts on that front, whether it's in social safety net programs or infrastructure spending uh, or defense or what have you. Uh, depending on how those pressures on spending play out, you can imagine that being something that's uh, quite problematic and painful uh, for the American people. Wow. So this has been a wonderfully informative conversation. And for our listeners out there, if, if you feel like this is just beginning to whet your appetite and you haven't quite gotten enough, uh, go to urban.org and you can uh, search for Dr. Donald Marin's uh, page and, and read his publications. He's done a lot of really in-depth work on, I mean, I mean, the first couple of ones that pop up are um, employee stock options and um, carried interest. So if you work in tech land or if you work in finance and, and private equity, very applicable to your fields. Uh, Dr. Marin, just really appreciative that you're able to join us and spell out some of the issues going on in the country today. Hey, this was fun. Thanks so much. And for those of you who don't understand the terms that Xander just said and are intimidated by that reading, like me, uh, I can recommend 30 Second Economics. It's a very short book. Dr. Marin edited it, uh, and it introduces uh, the, what, 50, I think, 50 most important topics in econ or concepts in economics. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if you're, if you're listening to this and say, hey, you know, I need to understand more about what debt servicing is or even what the GDP is and all this stuff, um, it's a great book and uh, you should definitely get it. It's a quick read and you will come out feeling deeply enlightened. So Dr. Marin, thank you so much for joining us on Reconsider today. It's been such a pleasure having you. Hey, thanks so much. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.